and welcome to Tea and Tattle, a podcast that celebrates female creativity and storytelling. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and today I'm joined by the author, Catherine May, to discuss Catherine's latest book, Wintering, which is a fascinating blend of memoir, self-help guide, and glorious nature writing. In Wintering, Catherine describes the frozen, desolate state that can occur in the mind and body after a period of stress, trauma or illness. By drawing parallels to the natural world and the incredible transformations that nature undergoes to survive the cold, Catherine shows how to both accept and withstand your own periods of wintering. In her book, Catherine interviews a range of people who have weathered extreme cold as well as times of extreme hardship. Catherine draws lessons from their experiences and blends these shared tales with her own poetic prose as she describes her adventures in swimming in the sea in freezing temperatures, travelling to witness the northern lights and battling her own demons of insomnia and anxiety. I found Wintering a deeply comforting, hopeful and beautiful book that I'm sure will become an annual read for me. But much as Wintering is a fabulous choice for a winter read, it's also an excellent book to curl up with as the thaws of March expose and sustain the first signs of spring and new life which have been gathering strength and waiting for their moment of renewal and growth all through the darker months of winter. This episode is a brilliant listen for anyone who finds solace in the natural world and who would like to learn how to gain more resilience and hope during times of hardship. Let's get started with the show. Hello Catherine, thank you so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you because (laughs) I adored wintering, I thought it was amazing and I can't wait to talk about the book with you today. But I think this was your, was it your second sort of dive into memoir territory? It's actually my third, um, because there's a kind of hidden first memoir that I wrote under a pseudonym um, about 10 years ago now. Uh, It was called The 52 Seductions, and I wrote it as Betty Herbert because it was about my sex life. and so, yeah, this is my third third memoir, actually. I'm oh. not sure how many more I've got in me. <laughs> Something's going to have to happen. <laughs> well, what is it that draws you to writing memoirs in particular? I, I mean, I'm a massive reader of memoir. I think it's definitely my favourite genre. Um, and I just really enjoy that opportunity to really think things through that deeply. I think whenever I want to learn something or make a change in my life, I write a memoir about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any tips on how you do write about your personal life? I mean, it must put you in an uncomfortable position mm. sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think my tips would be twofold. Um, to get the book actually written, I always say to people you have to do something like memoir I think that the word is misleading because it it kind of conjures this idea of you sitting at home and thinking about the past and and flowing your memories out and that actually makes quite a thin memoir Um, I think to really make memoir fly in terms of making it feel very immediate but also to just help you to have steps along the way 
you need to set yourself a kind of present day goal. So when I was writing about uh, my autism diagnosis in electricity of every living thing, um, I walked the Southwest Coast path and interwove that with memories about, uh, you know, my past and growing up. Mm. Um, and in wintering, I, I didn't really intend it to be a memoir very much, but it, it kind of happened in reverse in that I started doing all the things to explore winter and the memories come out and the, the kind of bits of your personal life intrude into the process of writing the book yes well I loved how it was kind of a mix of things like it was mm. part memoir but it was also almost a bit of a self-help guide yeah. <laughs> well that's really interesting you say that because um, when I first wrote the proposal I said I want to write a self-help book for people who hate self-help books um, I want a, help, a self-help book that offers no help whatsoever, really, not in a practical sense, but which kind of goes on a journey with people. And everyone said, don't call it a self-help book. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I sort of stand by that. I mean, I actually, I quite like self-help. Mm. I quite like reading it in times of crisis. And I always believe that it's going to give me something. Um, so I'm sort of not ashamed of that label, actually. I quite like it. Yes. No, I wouldn't be ashamed of it at <laughs> all either. I, I like self-help books myself. And some of them have really helped me sort of set good habits and things like that. Yeah. But I also just adored your writing in this mm. book. I mean, it's so poetic. You said that you like reading memoirs a lot. Mm. Are you also a fan of nature writing? I am, yeah. And I think obviously in the last few years, there's been this big collision of nature writing and memoir. Mm. Um, but I'm also a big fan of things like science writing, um, all of those genres of writing that dig into something really interesting. So I think that's where a lot of the diversions in wintering come that I just got really geeky and interested about different aspects of winter. Yes well I really liked how you looked into the sort of science as well as some of the folklore and mm. literature around it. Um, I really loved sort of exploring all of that with you but would you tell me a bit about your actual idea of wintering? How mm. do you define wintering and what first sparked this kind of recognition of what it was that you were going through yeah so wintering is the idea that in in the normal course of human life we'll always have these seasons out in the cold when we feel um i think i say cast out or uh that we've fallen through the cracks of life somehow um and i i suppose i've always thought about those moments in life as a kind of winter um but when i started thinking about the book i started drawing on wintry metaphors um, and also I guess I'm a big lover, lover of winter I'm not a summer person at all I'm very uncomfortable in the summer I hate the heat I hate the bright light <laughs> I'm very grumpy because I can't sleep properly um, I sunburn easily oh, I'm just like you I'm just the same <laughs> and every every year I kind of get to midsummer and I, I'll kind of put out a grumpy tweet or something and sort of say I hate this it's disgusting I just want it to be over <laughs> and somebody will always reply you wait you'll be sorry when it's winter and it's like I will not <laughs> and I never am I love I do love winter I mean I I think there are dreary moments and I think it can be really miserable and this winter's been really difficult because it's been so windy and rainy and it's been hard to get outside but I just find it a magical season and I wanted mm. to capture some of that mm. but the idea for the book in general um, came very very quickly to me one day when I was having a glass of wine with a friend one night um, and she was going through one of those big crisis points in life you know where everything seemed to be going wrong and I think she was feeling a little bit like 
she'd never recover. Like mm. this was the beginning of some kind of grand downward turn that would mm. be forever and that somehow the good bit was over. And I started sort of saying to her, no, you're not, you're wintering, you're wintering, it's fine. And I realised that that was just a concept that I understood and nobody else did, but that I had a kind of expertise in it because I wintered so many times myself and I wanted to share that. Mm. Well, it was really inspiring to me personally to read your book because I love the way within wintering you really allow people to not feel guilty or to mm. not feel like they've somehow done something wrong or that life has turned against them mm. during difficult moments and I know I mean I've been guilty in the past for going through a bad time and sort of saying why me you know why <laughs> yeah. why why now why me yeah and there's so much comfort I find from your book mm. in that you sort of say just like you know winter is part of the cyclical nature of the year and of seasons mm. so humans should expect to winter as well I'm really glad you say that because that's really I mean it makes me very happy because that's exactly what I wanted the book to offer yeah it's it's really normal and actually I, I'll read a little bit if that mm. if I can yeah. because I have a little paragraph of just about that we like to imagine that it's possible for life to be one eternal summer and that we have uniquely failed to achieve that for ourselves we dream of an equatorial habitat forever close to the sun, an endless, unvarying high season. But life's not like that. Emotionally, we're prone to stifling summers and low, dark winters, to sudden drops in temperature, to light and shade. Even if, by some extraordinary stroke of self-control and good luck, we were able to keep control of our own health and happiness for an entire lifetime, we still couldn't avoid the winter. Our parents would age and die, our friends would undertake minor acts of betrayal. The machinations of the world would eventually weigh against us. Somewhere along the line, we would screw up. Winter would quietly roll in. I thought that was mm. really important to say at the beginning of the book, really, that this isn't something that you can trick your way out of or that you can get life right like this kind of big line of ticks and therefore nothing bad will ever happen to you. Mm. Even to the most successful, competent, sunny people, bad stuff happens sometimes. And yep. that's not a failure, that's just part of life. Mm. And I think it really, really, really helps to have that perspective, actually. Oh, it really does. I mean, like I said, I found that such a comfort myself. <laughs> and that was something I really gained from reading your book. But um, like I've already said, I loved the writing in it. I just thought it was so accomplished and you evoke all everything that's wonderful about winter <laughs> I, I mean I'm a fan of winter too but I just loved reading um, your descriptions of that season so much you live right by the sea I do which I think sounds lovely I mean I'm in London in a very urban environment and I envied you being able to sort of open your door and breathe in you know not just car fumes <laughs> Yeah, it's quite a luxury, I think, isn't it? <laughs> it is. But um, do you think as a whole we're becoming more detached from nature? Do you think mm. this is affecting our mental health at all? Yeah, I think we are. I mean, it's almost a cliche to say it now that, you know, we're, we're kind of getting further and further away from that sense of seasonality. And that's that's what's really important about wintering, that you're recognizing a seasonal change and feeling that shift and living through that shift very consciously. 
I think that living near the sea actually really helps you to engage with that because you really do notice the seasons. You know, there's points in the year when you just can't walk along the seafront without, you know, your ears aching and tears running down your face. And you really notice the changes that happen to that natural landscape if you walk it really regularly, which I do. Um, I don't want to be the person that kind of laments how, you know, we're all on screens all the time and, uh, you know, I... I'm not interested in that kind of argument. I'm personally very addicted to my screen as much as I'm addicted to walking on the beach. But actually what I think is really important is that basic knowledge of the natural world, that kind of sense of what's growing when, what we eat at different points, the changes in the weather, which we don't notice because we just turn the heating up and stay indoors, um, the way that the weather might affect us. I mean, in the book I interview um, a woman called Hannah Manalen who is Finnish. And she talks about how they have to start making repairs to their house in August because when the snow comes, your pipes will more than freeze. It's not, it's not like we have in the UK. You know, you can't just lag the pipes. You have to make sure that there is absolutely nowhere in the house that, that water can get in because there will be snow on the roof for the whole time and the weight of it can be a problem. And you might get snowed in for long periods of time and you certainly won't be able to repair anything. There's no clemency in that weather. There's no kind of let off. Um, and I just think most of us in the UK certainly just do not have that sense of seasonality at all. Mm, yes. Um, and it's really interesting that once you start re-engaging with it, there's so much life in it. There's so much hope in it. Um, and you can really sense the kind of potency of nature and the potential of it, even in the deepest winter when it's just massing its energies and really ready to, to spring spring out literally again. Yes, and I love the parallels that you drew from nature and then also your own life in preparing yourself. If you knew a bad time was coming or mm. you knew you were going through a bit of a difficult patch, um, you started to really prepare for that mm. so you could get through it as sort of easily yeah. as possible. We should always be ready for the next time. You know, we, we should never believe that we've solved life forever because mm. that unfortunately just not true. Um mm. That's not to be pessimistic. That's not to say, you know, we need to run around like chicken licking the whole time saying the sky's falling in. And But just engage with the good times and get the most out of them. But use those times to put your house in order. So that might be looking after your mental health when you're happy. That That might be a good time to, you know, dive into those kind of areas of self-exploration that maybe you can't face doing when you're in absolute howling pain. Um it might be getting your finances in order. Um, it might be freezing some lovely summery food for the days when in winter you know you won't be able to bear to cook. Um, mm. It's different for everybody, but yeah, there's there's some making ready that we can all do. Mm. You've read a little bit from mm. your book already, but I know you've also um, planned a bit of a longer extract. Yeah. Would you mind reading that for us now? Yeah, I wanted to read to you a little tiny section uh, about um, the idea of abscission which is uh, how uh, the process by which trees let leaves fall from them without it causing harm um, and I think maybe this captures a little bit of the flavour of the book in terms of digging into the science of winter and building up a kind of metaphor for life. The dropping of leaves by deciduous trees is called abscission. It occurs on the cusp of autumn and winter as part of the long cycle of growth, maturity and renewal. In spring and summer, leaf cells are full of chlorophyll, 
a bright green substance that absorbs sunlight to fuel the process that converts carbon dioxide and water into the starch and sugar that allow the tree to grow. By the end of the summer, as the days grow shorter and the temperature falls, deciduous trees stop making food. In the absence of sunlight, it would be too costly to maintain the machinery of growth. The chlorophyll begins to break down, revealing other colours that were always present in the leaf, but which were masked by the abundance of green pigment. Oranges and yellows derived from carotene and xanthophyll. At the same time, other chemical changes take place to create red anthocyanin pigments. The exact mix is different for each tree, sometimes producing bright yellows, oranges and brown, and sometimes displaying as reds or purples, the trees put on their autumn display. But while this is happening, a layer of cells is weakening between the stem and the branch. This is called the abscission zone. Gradually, it severs the leaf from access to water and the leaf dries and browns, and then in most cases falls off, either under its own weight or encouraged by wintry rain and winds. Within a few hours, the tree will have released substances that heal the scar that the leaf has left, protecting itself from the evaporation of water, infection or the invasion of parasites. But even as the leaves are falling, the buds of next year's crop are already in place, waiting to erupt again in spring. Most trees produce their buds in high summer, and the autumn leaf fall reveals them, neat and expectant, protected from the cold by thick scales. We rarely notice them because we think we're seeing the skeleton of a tree, a dead thing until the sun returns. But look closely and every single tree is in bud, from the sharp talons of the beech to the hoof-like black buds of the ash. Many trees also display catkins in the winter, like the acid green lamb's tails of the hazel and the furry grey nubs of the willow. These employ the wind or insects to spread pollen ready for the new year. The tree is waiting. It has everything ready. Its fallen leaves are mulching the forest floor and its roots are drawing up the extra winter moisture, providing a firm anchor against the seasonal storms. Its ripe cones and nuts are providing essential food in this scarce time for mice and squirrels, and its bark is hosting hibernating insects and providing a source of nourishment for hungry deer. It is far from dead. It is, in fact, the life and soul of the wood. It's just getting on with it quietly. It will not burst into life in the spring. It will just put on a new coat and face the world again. Mm, thank you. <laughs> that was beautiful. I remember that passage from the book and I really love it. And it reminds me, I think at some point in you say in the book um, something like, you can't choose when you winter, but mm. you can choose how you winter. Mm. And I love that passage too with this idea that even at a time that seems very barren or dead, there's mm. actually so much life there. How did you learn to become more resilient? What lessons did you draw from nature during your times of wintering, how did you learn to cope with them better? I think for me, I learned to get outside. That was a huge change for me. I'm actually not a naturally outdoorsy person. I didn't grow up outdoorsy. I didn't have the sort of family that went out and got muddy in wellies. Um, I was never a very physically active child, actually, and I've only become a more physically active adult. But I've learned really to get outside in all weathers. And once you start doing that, it helps with a load of things. I mean, we all know that exercise helps with mental health. 
but also you're capturing all the daylight you can. You're making the most of that very scarce resource in the winter that's daylight. And you start to make observations. I mean, actually, that passage is really informative for thinking about the the different way you encounter the world if you get out in the winter. Mm. Because I didn't realise there were buds in the trees. And so I started looking. And first of all, I kind of thought, oh, this tree's behaving strangely. And then I realised that that's actually what trees do in the winter. They're Mm. all ready. There's so much going on. And there's so much colour in the woods in the winter too, which Mm. we just don't tend to think about. Um, And so, yeah, being outside has definitely, definitely helped me to be more resilient. I can always go for a short walk, even when things are terrible, Mm. uh, and it helps. Um, But I also, I've got a big section on swimming in cold water, which I think you probably want me to talk about, I suspect. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I loved the way that you you really, you know, you really went all in in experiencing, (laughs) (laughs) like, the true cold of winter. And I loved how you became kind of fascinated by cold. Mm. Um, And I so admire that you went, you know, swimming (laughs) in the sea in the winter because I am really wimpy about that. I just (laughs) can't picture it. I I think everyone is when it comes to thinking about diving into, you know, three degree water. I think wimpy doesn't really cover it. (laughs) (laughs) But you learned to love it. Yeah, and I I still do. Um, I mean, I'm I'm obsessed with the sea and I always have been. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to know that, that if there's ever an opportunity for me to get into the sea, I do. But despite that, when I moved to Whitstable, I thought I was going to swim all year round and I never did. I moved there 14 years ago um, and for 11 of those years, I would swim all through summer and then it would get to September and I think, hmm, getting a bit chilly now, I won't, I won't get in. Um, but yeah, so while I was writing Wintering, some friends who knew I was, you know, investigating the winter copied me into a Facebook one day and said come on, we're all going to set up this this group that swims all year round. Are you going to join? And I said, yeah, all right then. Um, and then turned up on the beach and only two of us were there and nobody else, <laughs> nobody else wanted to actually do it. They loved the idea of it, but they were all too scared. Um, so I stood on the beach with a woman who's now become a great friend of mine, Margot Selby, um, who many of you might know better from her amazing cushion designs rather than her incredible sea swimming prowess. Um, and we just got in. And first of all, it was terrifying. I mean, the the cold has this effect on your rib cage specifically when you first immerse. It just feels like it's clamped it and all the breath gets pushed out of you. <gasps> and you're scared you're never going to draw in that next breath. Um, but once you've got terrified, run out again and dried off, <laughs> you kind of think, oh, that was actually okay. I didn't die. It was... <laughs> I mean, you know, defining the enjoyment of things against the I didn't die is probably um, not the way that I'd normally think about having fun. Um, But but there's but that that's what cuts to this idea of resilience, isn't it? That, Mm. you know, doing a resilient thing makes you feel more resilient Mm. and doing something that terrifies you and surviving it is actually a real gift. Um, And it's a gift I have on my doorstep. So after that, I swam every day. And within a week, I could stay in for 10 minutes. I I was amazed how quickly my body adapted. And what I learned was that the cold gives you this incredible high when you're Mm. swimming in the water. And and I've since looked into the science and found that, yeah, you know, it releases dopamine and serotonin, which are chemicals we associate with, uh, you know, happiness, 
you know, feeling that feeling of a high and, and they're, they're the chemicals that get released when you take ecstasy. Mm. And it's a very similar effect. You feel happy, chatty, sociable. And we all say that when we're all swimming in the water together, because there's loads more of us now, <laughs> we all just blurt whatever's on our minds. And it's really, really therapeutic. Well, if I ever do try it, then I'll know <laughs> to get out and my thumbs go cold. Thumb joints, yeah. Thumb you joints. feel that ache in your thumb joints and then you know it's the moment, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I thought I'll bear that in mind, although <laughs> to be honest, I'll probably be out a lot sooner than that. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, talking about resilience, another part of the book I really enjoyed was you write a little bit about a debate you had over Uh, potentially homeschooling or considering homeschooling Mm, mm. your son at one point um, because he just wasn't really happy in the school Mm. situation he was in. I've been homeschooled myself, so I was particularly interested in that. But what also interested me was that there's a point where you shouldn't maybe be resilient. You know, something's Mm. going really wrong sometimes you need to recognize that and know when okay actually this isn't a time for me to try and push through Mm. it's when something needs to change how do you identify when those (laughs) moments are wow I wish there was a hard and fast rule um I mean I think I think the thing is that when you make those big changes it comes after you've tried to tough it out for a while Mm. actually you do a little Mm. bit of toughing out and you watch to see if the toughing out works and sometimes Mm. it does we all know that you know that things that can seem like an absolute disaster one day the week later seem absolutely fine Mm. um but we found with my son Bert that he was really unhappy in school he was coming home unhappy um he was waking up unhappy and we couldn't do enough in situ to change that. And so mm. we had to really rethink how we were going to cope with, with that. I mean, it, homeschooling was never a, in my plan. Um, mm. And he's, he's happily back to school now, actually. So mm. I'm really delighted that he did it for a short period of time and then went back into a different school where he, he loves it. Um, but I think it taught me a lot that moment. It was I really undenied about writing about it because I don't want to invade his privacy and I was very careful about the de- you yeah. know sharing the yeah. details. Um, but I also wanted to say how important it was for me during that period of time to uh, really, really reflect on what I was willing to do for his happiness mm. um, and what I wished I'd do for my own happiness in lots of ways. Mm. And... I mean, this is something about being a parent maybe, but I would make the world stop for him and I did. And it was Mm. really hard on me. Um, I am not the world's most patient human being. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was the mother that, you know, he was always in nursery when I was working, (laughs) Um, but he needed it. And so we did it Mm. and we got loads out of it, both of us actually. Mm. Um, And we, uh, we wintered together on that front and it was a, it's something that I will never regret doing, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, like I said, I really loved that part in the book. And I, I thought it was such a wonderful example of parenting too. I mean, I was homeschooled initially just because we'd moved from Switzerland to the States. Okay, and so the, you couldn't the quite schooling fit between system, your systems. Yes, mm-hmm. so, and my mum was already a teacher. But then later as a teenager, well, as a very sort of early teenager, I went back into the school s- system for a bit. 
But I'd so become devoted to ballet by that point that I was doing so much of it every day and I was having to give some of that up with the I school. See. And that made me feel so unhappy. Mm. Um, and it felt like the sort of colour was drained from the mm. world. And my parents really listened to that at the time and so pulled me out and homeschooled me wow. again. Um, for Lovely a while. parents. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, so that, that's why that section really resonated. Oh, that's really interesting to me. hear. You don't actually, I mean, I, I, homeschooling's got a lot more common now, but you don't mm. meet many adults who have been homeschooled, I don't think. No, I mean, we lived in the States during this mm. time and it's more common there, but yeah, I don't think it is it's not so, common. so common in the but UK. But I mean, I, I think so often we force children into stuff without truly, mm. truly listening to them. Mm. And the number of times you're speaking with adults and they talk about that moment when they were pushed into that thing that they hated and they knew they hated it and nobody heard them and it still affects them now. Mm. And I was really determined to listen. I, I took his feelings really seriously and I think that's something we've got to learn to do in this society mm. is take our emotional health really, really seriously mm. because we know through horrible experience that those those seeds that are planted then become horrible, horrible, ugly weeds mm. when we are adults. Yeah. Um, and I wanted him to know that when life felt unbearable, it's okay to push the stop button and everybody will hear you and everybody will take you seriously and it's okay mm. to make yourself happy again. Mm, yes. Well, I agree that's such an important lesson to teach children. Mm. And I think you know the worst anyone can feel sometimes is just to feel completely unheard. Yeah, so massively it is, important. Yeah, it is. But we've already spoken how you really got into the sort of science of winter. I also loved how you got into both the sort of reading and folklore of winter. I mean, I love curling up with children's classic books in the winter, I think, as much as you yes, do. Yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I loved all the references to books like The Golden Compass mm. or Northern Lights, as it's called here. Yes. And also The Children of Green Know. Um, That's my absolute favourite book, The Children oh. of Green Know. It's been a lifetime love of mine. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful book. It is. I know it's fabulous. But I was also so intrigued by how you really started looking at different rituals mm. um, that can occur through winter. And I loved your description of going to the Swedish church in <laughs> Marlebone in yes, London, yeah. um, which just sounded delightful. It was lovely. Went to see the, um, the uh, Santa Lucia service yeah. um which is the famous one where the the woman walks down the aisle with a i mean i thought they'd fake it for the modern age but no like a literal crown of burning candles it's, it's incredible I, my whole health and safety alarms yeah. were going off inside but um it's really beautiful they low you know they dim all mm. the lights and the church is full of children because i think it's that moment in the year when everyone takes their kids to church mm. and there's this whisper pass around with the children like oh it's gonna be lucia and then she walks in singing the famous song and it's it's very very beautiful and very peaceful actually a very mm. peaceful moment in a you know what can be a really busy time. Yes, yeah, I mean you've talked about being more observant of nature and how that's mm. helped you. Does this the idea of rituals that you can observe through the months? Does that come into observing the world around mm. you more as well and just being more aware of these shifts and how you can 
um, yeah. sort of celebrate them. Yeah, I mean, I a lot of the Christian rituals around winter are based on pagan festivals, as are so many. You know, like Easter we, is the famous one uh, yeah. with all the eggs and rabbits. Where did they come into it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I I mean, I grew up without ritual, really. I'm from mm. a very atheistic family. Um, I've always rejected it a lot myself. But as I get older, I'm beginning to seek ritual and seek ways to mark those really important moments in life mm. um and so actually i mean a real turning point in the book for me was when i interviewed philip cargom who's the chief druid who i meant to interview about uh, stonehenge i'd gone to the winter solstice at stonehenge which is where everybody gathers to watch the sun rise um at the beginning of the end of the shortest day so sorry that's the, a really bad way to phrase it so mm. after the shortest days happen we watch the sun rise as the the year turns mm. Um, so I meant to ask him about that, but I ended up in this wonderful conversation with him about the way that he, he is a druid and also other pagan traditions mark out the wheel of the year. And he said this, for me, incredibly insightful thing, which was, look, you don't have to believe anything in particular, but what you can get out of this is the idea that you're only ever six weeks away from another moment in the year moving on. Mm. So no matter how dark it is the regularity of the traditional calendar means that you've always got the next moment to look forward to. And if you can just hold on till then, then you've got another step in, in the way. Mm. And then you've got another six weeks and something else is going to move on. So it really does show you how soon change happens. Mm. And actually, I increasingly think about that in terms of the school year, <laughs> you know, yes. You're only ever six weeks away from a holiday there yeah. as well, unless those it's one of those really evil terms that's seven weeks. I used to yeah. be a teacher as well, so well, I always... Me too. You watch those those weeks I really closely. terms. <laughs> yes. Longest ever. Yeah, that, yeah that, that kind of... That one up to Christmas and the one after Christmas, just yeah. the two absolute worst. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, it's like having beats through the year. And what's more, you are marking a very specific period in the calendar where you're noticing something about nature and since then since I wrote the book I've learned that the Japanese identify 24 micro seasons across really? the year yeah uh, yeah so it's, so each one is kind of two weeks long or wow. you know not very there's not very much but they're, they're noticing a tiny change like a new flower coming out or mm. a different kind of flavor in the wind or something like that and yeah. I I think that's really something in that you mm. know just knowing that time is ticking on without you there's something bigger than you going on there's a bigger process going on and it will carry on with or without you mm. but if you engage with it and if you're part of it you you gain an enormous amount yes oh yeah. I love that idea that's mm. wonderful micro seasons yes I'm going to be all that. about the micro seasons this year <laughs> yeah, me too <laughs> <laughs> but so it we're now um well when this <laughs> episode goes live it will be March and spring is really starting to blossom around us yeah. I was just noticing the magnolia buds um, outside of here today do you do anything to mark this shift into spring I don't think I do in fact I get a little bit sad at this time of year because mm. I'm often I mean at the moment I'm thinking oh it's not gonna snow <laughs> we've not had a really good I, I realize that I, I you know this is not relatable content um <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of I don't 
do the ritual stuff that I do in the winter actually mm. but what I do do is I again kind of notice those micro moments in the year so I'm looking out for the first time I see snowdrops and crocuses and then uh, the primroses came up in my garden I noticed mm. them yesterday I don't know when they came up but they mm. are up um, I'm looking out for the catkins I'm looking out for the first leaves coming out and I and for me actually just that practice of walking every day if I can just somewhere I mean I have a dog now so I, I now need to walk the dog somewhere every day but just noticing those tiny changes I think really helps and I you know I love um, I love an excuse for a little bonfire outside and I love an excuse to cook outside and so I really notice those first times when I can extend my evening out in the mm. in the you know into the darkness when the darkness mm. doesn't become so cold. Um, the, that first beach barbecue of the year is really really special. We we've got our portable barbecue that we take down and we you know just grill something simple, but we do it a lot because the mm. beach is so near to us. Um, and that moment it, it's it's often in April. You know it's, mm. we're never very far from that. Mm. Um, I love to notice the lambs in the fields and yes. you know the baby birds we have a new crop of baby seagulls every year in Aww. Whitstable which are maybe not adored in the same way that other baby doors, <laughs> birds are adored <laughs> they are noisy and oh, needy no. but um, but they're also very cute and fluffy but every year they fledge too young and end up kind of walking around the streets of Whitstable with their mothers swooping around you to protect them um, and yeah. <laughs> yeah it's quite um, that's quite a Whitstable thing actually <laughs> Well, I imagine the sea starts to warm up a little bit. Too, oh, it takes a long it? time for the sea to warm really? up, actually. Yeah, the sea responds very slowly to changes in temperature. So um, it's, I mean, it's not got as cold this year as it has other mm. years. We've really, really noticed it. It did have one day that we swam that it was four degrees. Um, we've certainly not had any of the days when it gets slushy at the edges mm. because it's so mm. cold. Um, but actually, it will stay cold until uh, easily May or June. Mm. Um so it won't rise very much and then it gradually climbs over the summer and by September it's like warm bath water mm. and it retains a bit of that heat going down into the autumn so you oh. kind of have a, a you know a, a false little bit of heat for a while it, oh. it's it's slightly out of whack with the seasons it yes. takes longer to, to yes. warm and cool yeah Oh, that's interesting. Well, Catherine, it's been such a pleasure oh, <laughs> talking you. to you about your wonderful book. But at the end of my interviews, I always ask <laughs> my guest to share a cultural recommendation. <laughs> so I'd love to hear about something you've been enjoying lately. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this because I, I listen to your podcast and I know you always ask people. And I was thinking, God, I'm such a cultural black hole. Um, it's a really interesting thing about uh, my day job, which is I read for a literary scout is that we are the worst people to ask about upcoming books because <laughs> we read everything so early that we're totally disoriented about what's <laughs> current. So if you ask me what I'm reading at the moment, I'm likely to tell you something that you won't be able to read for two years. <laughs> um, and we, <laughs> it's always, we're always completely confounded about what current culture is. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeless to ask. Um, however, I, do, I did look up two that I know are coming up soon that I loved. Okay. Um, there's a brilliant memoir coming up by Catherine Cho called Inferno, mm. which is her memoir of postpartum psychosis. It's very beautifully mm. written, but it's also completely fascinating and yeah. engrossing. Yeah. Um, I really recommend that. I think that's coming out in March. Um, and another one I love that's, I think, coming up in May, but mm. don't quote me on that, is mm. um, Sophie Hayward's The Hungover Games, oh. um, which is another memoir of motherhood, funny enough. I've been reading a lot this year because I've just edited a, um, a volume of uh, essays uh, about a motherhood called The Best Most Awful Job. <laughs> um, 
so Sophie Hayward's book is about her becoming a an accidental single mother um, and it's very funny and charming and uh, honest but also very loving and affectionate and it's it's a really great read so there's there are two oh, that I'd recommend wonderful thank you <laughs> I'll put links to those in the show notes so people can pre-order them maybe too but what's next for you could you tell me a little bit more about um, the Best Most Awful Job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a great title. Yeah, so that's um, it's a collection of essays from some really, really brilliant writers who are all invited to write as if we trusted them to love their children in the first place. Um, when I was putting the anthology together, I thought about how many times mothers have to apologise for saying anything vaguely negative or challenging or for asking them for their own time back. Um, and so all of the essays were commissioned on the basis that, do you know what? We trust you. You're OK. Now tell us the truth about your experience. Mm. Um, and the essays that have resulted are just amazing. Um, but they're also from a really diverse list of authors. We really, really wanted to break open this idea of the kind of, you know, white mother on the front mm. of all those pregnancy guides, you yeah. know, tapping her bump yeah. <laughs> um, and looking really pleased with herself. Mm. Um, so there are some fantastic voices here. There's some really angry stuff. There's some really sad stuff. There's some really beautiful stuff. And I feel like there's so much truth in the book. So I, oh. I, I'm really proud of it. I mean, I'm allowed to say that because I didn't write it. So <laughs> that's the great joy of editing something. <laughs> well, it sounds really <laughs> wonderful. And it's out in March. It is out on the 19th of March, just in time for, for a kind of slightly darker Mother's Day gift. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds brilliant. <laughs> and um, are you doing any book events or anything like that coming up soon? Yeah, I'm appearing at the Wilden Literary Festival in June, um, which I think is going to be really lovely. It's a beautiful festival. that I'm actually a trustee of the festival, so I've oh. snuck onto their programme this year. <laughs> Um, but that's a really lovely um, festival that's all about nature writing and held in a beautiful country garden. Um, oh. So I recommend that to anybody. Do come and see me, obviously. Yes. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm also in July appearing at um, a few different uh, bookstores in the West Country. Um, lots of lovely indies, which I'll put up on my website if anyone's down that way. Um, I'll be in Lost With You, I'll be in Dulverton, and I'll be in Penzance. So oh, doing, I love Penzance. Oh, I love the whole of the South yeah. so that's <laughs> going to be amazing. That yeah. will be. So if people would like to keep up with your news, mm. where's best to find you online? Oh, I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm. Uh, it's really hard to say my Twitter handle out loud, but I'm like underscore Catherine underscore May underscore. It makes sense visually, but it doesn't yeah. make sense to say it. <laughs> Um, and I'm on Instagram a lot too as Catherine May underscore. There's so many Catherine Mays out there. I really struggle really? to get my own name. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. And yeah, you mentioned you had a website. Too. I do. I'm Catherine-May.co.uk, which okay. is much more sensible, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Super. Well, Catherine, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to talk. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Catherine for her wonderful interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 129. If you've enjoyed my chat with Catherine, then I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend or please consider leaving a review of Tea and Tattle on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher as great reviews help other people to find the show. 
If you'd like to get in touch, then come and find Tea and Tattle on Instagram at Tea and Tattle Podcast, where I share the latest podcast news, sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and things I think Tea and Tattle listeners will love. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back again next Tuesday with another brilliant Tea and Tattle interview. But until then, goodbye. Thank you.